Hey, it's Guy here. So today's show is all about the evolution of our species, where we come from and where we're headed. And with all the advancements in gene editing technology, we can now modify our very own DNA faster, cheaper, and more precisely. So could we be evolving into a different species or even several variations of species? Well, this episode first aired in October of 2014, but we've re-interviewed our last speaker to get an update on where this technology is headed. He's a futurist who says evolution is no longer driven just by nature, but also by human choice. This episode is called How It All Began. Hope you enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. A couple weeks ago, I got a small package in the mail. And inside, there was a kit. It was a couple of plastic test tubes. There were a few plastic scrapers, some Ziploc bags. And my instructions were to scrape the inside of my cheeks up and down for about 30 seconds. And how was that for you? It was great. It was great. (laughs) And and then send those sticks back to this guy. My name is Dr. Spencer Wells, and I'm a card-carrying explorer at the National Geographic Society. And I'm the director of the Genographic Project there. The Genographic Project at National Geographic has collected cheek swabs from about 700,000 people around the world. And in each of those swabs, embedded in the DNA, there's a story. So, uh, so, so what'd you find? Who, like, where do I come from? Well, I'm looking at your results right now. Okay. And so we're analyzing several pieces of your genome. On your mother's side, your type is T1B3. Um, It's mostly found in southeastern Europe and the Middle East. And your subtype is more common in Turkey than elsewhere. Wow. And on your dad's side, you also have a group that's more common in the Middle East. So your particular combination is closest to Lebanese and Romanians. That's amazing. So again, pointing to kind of the region around Turkey. So your ancestors would have encountered the Neanderthals in the Middle East between 45 and 50,000 years ago. And they bred with them, oh. and you today are carrying 2.7% Neanderthal DNA. Wow. Which is slightly higher than average. Huh. Average is about yeah. 2.1%. You know, it's funny you say that, because I <laughs> I do have some characteristics that I think would confirm that, <laughs> that finding. So we're all curious about our roots, right? And they seem so personal. But Spencer's chasing a much bigger story, a story that connects every single one of us to a common origin. You know, this is one of those basic human questions. You know, like Einstein said, I want to know the thoughts of God. All else is detail. This is one of those deep human questions that I feel like we as a species should be trying to answer. You know, as the only species that, in the history of the universe, as far as we know, that has ever evolved the capacity to start to answer these sorts of questions, by God, we need to be trying to do it. Okay, challenge accepted. Our show today, How It All Began. Stories and ideas about our origins, who we are, what came before us, and where we're going as a species. 
later in the show, Spencer Wells returns to explain how in a very short period of time, we left Africa and spread out across the planet. But first... My name is David Christian, and since 1989, I've been teaching courses on the history of the universe and the place of humans inside that story, and I call them Big History. David Christian is an historian, and his idea, Big History, is really about our place in the universe and how small our part of the story actually is. Here you are. You exist around this star, you exist on this planet, you are a member of this species, and all of these are part of knowing what you are. And eventually, of course, you'll get to say you were brought up in Australia or in America. All of those stories we need. But we also need this big story. And as long as we don't have this big story, it's going to be very hard, I think, for us to understand ourselves as humans. So the story David Christian tells begins 13.8 billion years ago, pitch black darkness. Here's David on the TED stage. Around us, there's nothing. There's not even time or space. Imagine the darkest, emptiest thing you can and cube it a gazillion times, and that's where we are. And then suddenly, bam! A universe appears, an entire universe, and we've crossed our first threshold. The universe is tiny, it's smaller than an atom, it's incredibly hot, it contains everything that's in today's universe. It's busting, and it's expanding at incredible speed. And at first it's just a blur, but very quickly distinct things begin to appear in that blur. Within the first second, energy itself shatters into distinct forces, including electromagnetism and gravity. And energy does something else quite magical. It congeals to form matter. Quarks that'll create protons and leptons that include electrons. And all of that happens in the first second. Now we move forward 380,000 years. That's twice as long as humans have been on this planet. And now simple atoms appear of hydrogen and helium. Gravity is more powerful where there's more stuff. So where you get slightly denser areas, gravity starts compacting clouds of hydrogen and helium atoms. So we can imagine the early universe breaking up into a billion clouds. And each cloud is compacted, gravity gets more powerful as density increases, the temperature begins to rise at the center of each cloud, and then at the center of each cloud, the temperature crosses the threshold temperature of 10 million degrees, protons start to fuse. There's a huge release of energy, and bam! We have our first stars. From about 200 million years after the Big Bang, stars begin to appear all through the universe, billions of them. And the universe is now significantly more interesting and more complex. And all of that wasn't even half a billion years after the Big Bang. It would take another eight or nine billion years for our solar system and our planet to form, and nearly another billion before the first signs of life. 
For most of that time of life on Earth, living organisms have been relatively simple, single cells, but they had great diversity and inside great complexity. Then from about 600 to 800 million years ago, multi-celled organisms appear. You get fungi, you get fish, you get plants, you get amphibia, you get reptiles, and then, of course, you get the dinosaurs. And occasionally, there are disasters. 65 million years ago, an asteroid landed on Earth near the Yucatan Peninsula, creating conditions equivalent to those of a nuclear war. And the dinosaurs are wiped out. Terrible news for the dinosaurs, but great news for our mammalian ancestors, who flourished in the niches left empty by the dinosaurs. And we human beings are part of that creative evolutionary pulse that began 65 million years ago with the landing of an asteroid. Why do you think we need to know this story? Why do we need to know about our origins? Well, if I were to turn the question around and say, why do we need to know about American history, what would the answer be? I think it would be that we need to be able to place ourselves in a story. Isn't that right? One, of the, one example of this, one wonderful example about this, is, is my friend Walter Alvarez, the geologist. He's the person who more or less proved that it was an asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. Now, if that asteroid had been on a trajectory five minutes earlier or five minutes later, it wouldn't have wiped out the dinosaurs, and the dinosaurs would almost certainly still rule the planet, and we wouldn't be here. It's as simple as that. So it's a story that in one sense, makes us feel very small and very little. We inhabit an obscure planet in an obscure galaxy around an obscure sun. But, on the other hand, modern human society represents one of the most complex things we know. And that's the other side of the story. That makes us look pretty interesting. Humans appeared about 200,000 years ago. Now, what makes humans different is human language. We are blessed with a language, a system of communication so powerful and so precise that we can share what we've learned with such precision that it can accumulate in the collective memory. And that means it can outlast the individuals who learnt that information and it can accumulate from generation to generation. And that's why as a species we're so creative and so powerful and that's why we have a history. We seem to be the only species in four billion years to have this gift. I mean, I know, I know it sounds like a little bit new agey, but I mean, it is a mystery. Where, where we come from is a mystery. We, we really don't entirely know. Look, it's a wonderful, it, it is a mystery indeed, but having said that, the astonishing thing is that modern science can open many doors on that mystery, not all of them, there are still doors we can't open. We don't know what to do with consciousness, for example. We don't know what happened before the Big Bang. But we can tell a remarkably good story about many parts of that mystery. And that story's got better and better and better in the last 50 years. So, I hope you agree this is a powerful story. And it's a story in which humans play an astonishing and creative role but it also contains warnings. I remember very vividly as a child growing up in England, living through the Cuban Missile Crisis. For a few days, the entire biosphere seemed to be on the verge of destruction. And the same weapons 
are still here and they're still armed. If we avoid that trap, others are waiting for us. We're burning fossil fuels at such a rate that we seem to be undermining the Goldilocks conditions that made it possible for human civilizations to flourish over the last 10,000 years. So what big history can do is show us the nature of our complexity and fragility and the dangers that face us. But it can also show us our power with collective learning. When you think about our origins and you think about this idea of a unified history of the universe, it places like our whole very brief history into in, a context in which I can't help but think, God, not only are we less relevant than we think, but but we've wasted so much time focusing on ourselves and our on our differences when in fact we are a tiny piece of this huge story. I agree, I agree, and that's one of the reasons why I think the story is so powerful, because it makes the differences between humans seem rather irrelevant. So if in, in schools we keep teaching that history is divided into American history and Chinese history and Russian history and Australian history, we're teaching kids that they are divided into tribes. And we're failing to teach them that we also, as human beings, share problems that we need to work together with. David Christian teaches a course called Big History. To find out more about it and to see David's entire talk about the story of us, go to TED.com. Our show today, how it all began, our origins. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Capital One. With the Capital One Saver Card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on milkshakes with the kids and 4% on music with your pals. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now, when you go out, you cash in. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms apply. Thanks also to Smartwater. Smartwater is on a mission to add fresh thinking to the world through thoughtful innovation. That's why they created two new ways to hydrate. Smartwater Alkaline with 9 plus pH helps keep you hydrated while you're on the move. And Smartwater Antioxidant with added selenium helps find balance for your body and mind. But they didn't stop there. Now you can order Smartwater by saying, Alexa, order Smartwater. Yourself will thank yourself. Smartwater, that's pretty smart. Hey, and one more thing before we get back to the show. Just a reminder that throughout the month of December, we're asking you to make a year-end gift to your local public radio station. Because when you donate, your gift goes right back to your own public radio community. And it is so important to get your contributions in before the end of the year. It's super easy. Just go to donate.npr.org slash tedradio. And thanks. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And our show today, How It All Began, ideas about our origins and the things that came before us. So think back to your own recent origins when you were a kid. You probably had a favorite dinosaur, right? My favorite dinosaur is the T-Rex. Um, T-Rex. 
It's probably a T-Rex. We tried this question out on some kids at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum here in Washington, D.C., and we found some striking uniformity. What's your favorite dinosaur? T-Rex. A T-Rex. I'm a T-Rex. T-Rex again! These kids were between 5 and 12, and when you try to pin them down on why, why the T-Rex is their favorite? Because... Well... It's the king and the T-Rex's teeth are, are as big as a banana. It's like eating bones and people and stuff. It's kind of like my dream monster if you think about it. Because it's scary and big. What does it, it sound like the T-Rex makes? <sighs> <laughs> so what is it about these creatures who lived so long before we did that speaks to us about our own origins? They're gone and they're very different from anything alive today. This is Jack Horner. I'm the curator of paleontology at the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana. Jack Horner is like other scientists who are trying to piece together parts of our past. Some of them simulate the Big Bang inside massive particle colliders. Others look deep into space through giant telescopes to see the past. And in Jack's case, He's also on a quest to bring some of that distant past, literally, back to life. And it all started with Jurassic Park. The Tyrannosaurus Rex they made in the first movie was just incredibly real looking. Jack was an advisor on the film, and he was even the inspiration for one of the main characters. Keep absolutely still. Dr. Alan Grant. Suspicion's based on movement. I guess the fortunate thing about that is that he didn't get eaten. <laughs> <laughs> and it was seeing the T-Rex so lifelike on the big screen that reignited something in Jack. It was one of the things that sparked my interest in actually trying to make a dinosaur. Just like in the movie, Jack Horner wants to make a real-life dinosaur but one a little friendlier than the T-Rex, one he says you could actually have as a pet. What, uh, what kind of pet dinosaur would you have? Why well, would have a chickenosaurus? A chickenosaurus. Actually, it's not that different from what Jack's character did Seriously. in Jurassic Park. Well, maybe dinosaurs have more in common with present-day birds than they do with reptiles. In this scene, Dr. Alan Grant is examining a velociraptor fossil. Look at the pubic bone, turned backward, just like a bird. Look at the vertebrae, full of air sacs and hollows, just like a bird. And even the word raptor means bird of prey. And even if we can't make a dinosaur like they did in Jurassic Park, could a bird, could a chicken get us closer? Here's Jack Horner's big idea from the TED stage. The theme of this story is building a dinosaur, and so we come to that part of Jurassic Park. This is, you know, Michael Crichton really was one of the first people to talk about bringing dinosaurs back to life. Now, if you want dinosaur DNA, I say, go to the dinosaur. Back in 1993, when the movie came out, we actually had a grant from the National Science Foundation to attempt to extract DNA from a dinosaur. But we have discovered that dinosaur DNA, all di DNA, just breaks down too fast. We're just not going to be able to do what they did in Jurassic Park. We're not going to be able to make a dinosaur based on a dinosaur. 
But birds are dinosaurs. Birds are living dinosaurs. So we don't have to make a dinosaur. So I already have them. I know, you're, you're, as, you're as bad as the sixth graders, right? The sixth graders look at it and they say, no. You can call it, you can call it a dinosaur, but look at the velociraptor. The velociraptor is cool. The chicken is not. Fix the chicken. So we have a number of, of ways that we actually can fix the chicken. We'll call them biological modification tools. We have selection. And we know selection works, right? I mean, we started out with a wolf-like creature, and we end up with a Maltese. I mean, that's definitely genetic modification. We also have transgenesis. Transgenesis is really cool, too. That's where you take a gene out of one animal and stick it in another one. You know, that's how people made glowfish. You take a gene, a glow gene out of a coral or a jellyfish, and you stick it in a zebrafish, and they glow. And I guess we could make a glow chicken. But I don't think that'll satisfy the sixth graders either. Jack's solution is to focus on something buried deep in the origin of the chicken. For instance, every chicken, while it is still an embryo, actually has a three-fingered hand. But at some point, a gene switches on and it triggers the fusion of the hand. And so there are genes that have fused the fingers together, basically, to form the, the wing. The idea is that if scientists could figure out a way to stop those genes from activating... We can get a chicken that hatches out with a three-fingered hand. And the same goes for the tails. We know that in embryo, as the animal is developing, it actually has a relatively long tail. But a gene turns on and resorbs the tail, gets rid of it. So that's the other gene we're looking for. We want to stop that tail from resorbing. So what we're trying to do, really, is take our chicken, modify it, and make a chickenosaurus. You can just imagine a chicken if it had a long, bony tail and a three-fingered hand instead of wings, it would be a long ways to looking like a velociraptor even then. Wow. Jack, you are freaking me out a little bit. <laughs> you know, when I explain this sort of thing to people, and people do get kind of weirded out, I, I, I try to take them back to dogs, for example. You know, yeah. with a chihuahua, they've basically bred for an animal that looks like the embryonic wolf. Huh. And so, you know, if you can be happy with that, yeah. I surely don't understand why a bird with a tail is going to freak anybody out. Oh, don't get me wrong. I will be first in line to see the Chickenosaurus. <laughs> well, we're working on it. Now, even though a living, breathing Chickenosaurus is still a long way off, Jack says even just the idea of one is one way to get kids closer to our collective past. Absolutely. And it also, you know, teaches them about evolution. And one of the cool things I think about dinosaurs is that it allows, you know, kids get interested and and they just soak up all this information about dinosaurs and early on they know more than their parents. And so they really fuel the imagination of kids. And 
even as a paleontologist, I, I imagine them fighting. I imagine them roaming around. They still fuel my imagination. When you think about that time period that we're talking about, you know, such a long period of time has passed since then. Does studying dinosaurs kind of put, you know, the human era into perspective for you as almost like a, a blip in time? Well, let me, let me give you a different perspective. Just, you know, take any group of dinosaurs, like horned dinosaurs. The amount of time that horned dinosaurs were on Earth and the amount of time they had to evolve was greater than the period of time since they've gone extinct to now. Wow. So trying to put, you know, the blip of time into perspective, I mean, we have had zero time as far as humans go. Paleontologist Jack Horner. You can find his talk at ted.npr.org. By the way, when we talked to Jack last year, he was advising the filmmakers behind the latest Jurassic Park movie, Jurassic World. I've been on the set. Yeah. So can you tell us some, you know, a little well, bit? Well, I can't tell you. We won't tell. <laughs> won't tell anybody. It's a great story, and it's got a really, really scary new dinosaur. In oh, it. what kind? Oh, I can't tell you. Does it have feathers? Nope, doesn't have feathers. Does it have really sharp teeth? Yes, it does. Who would wear that? So this whole story about all the things that came before us and how we got here, it's pretty hard to wrap your head around because the scale is so huge. So how do you explain it? I like to use a roll of toilet paper. Uh, and by the way, this is the renowned paleontologist Louise Leakey. So if you lay out a toilet roll, which is 400 sheets in length, and you actually think about where the dinosaurs, which everybody's familiar with, comes in on the 19th sheet from the end and they go extinct. On the fifth sheet from the end, they're around for 14 or so sheets of that toilet roll. At that point, it gave rise to the mammals. And our species, Homo sapiens, only came into being in that very last millimetre of that last sheet. The last 200,000 years. A millimetre of the 400th sheet on a roll of toilet paper, that's the whole history of our species. And until very recently, we didn't even know that much. And what we do know about our origins is thanks in large part to Louise Leakey's family. Their story in Africa all started with her great-grandparents. They were missionaries who settled in Kenya's Kikuyu Highlands. And that's where Louis, my grandfather, was born. And he really grew up speaking Kikuyu and Swahili and collecting snakes and animals and finding small little obsidian flakes as, as a child, which I think really instilled within him a sense of, of excitement. And I think that really sowed the seed. He was convinced he was going to find the answers to our past in Africa rather than outside of Africa, which is what the conventional thinking was at that time. Okay, so a bit of explanation here. Up until really the late 1940s, most serious paleontologists believed in something called the out-of-Asia theory. And it basically argued that our species developed in Asia, and the fossil record at the time seemed to confirm it. But Louis Leakey was an outlier. He was absolutely convinced that humans came from Africa. And he became obsessed with proving it. 
even though most self-respecting fossil hunters were digging in Asia. They had finds from Indonesia, from China, and to, to have imagined that you could have found fossils in Africa didn't seem right. What they didn't know was the fossils that were found outside of Africa were all much younger than the fossils that they would then go on to find in Africa. So, of course, the conventional thinking was that Lewis was looking in quite the wrong place. But Lewis Leakey and his wife Mary persisted. They spent decades digging for clues in Tanzania in a remote area known as Olduvai Gorge. Olduvai Gorge gives us one of the most remarkable stories of the past, the last chapter of the Earth's history, starting from the present day right away back to two million years. This is Lewis Leakey from an old National Geographic documentary. And it was at Olduvai Gorge where the Leakeys would upend the entire field of paleoanthropology in 1959. When my grandmother Mary found the skull of Zinjanthropus. Now, the skull of Zinjanthropus was one of the most significant hominid fossils found up to that point. It was 1.75 million years old, far older than other fossils found in China and Indonesia. And it proved that our ancestors came from and evolved in Africa. So that find really put then Africa on the map and made people then turn to Africa. It changed our entire understanding of where we came from. And that find launched a family dynasty of paleontologists, their sons Richard and Jonathan, and eventually their granddaughter, Louise, who explained her ideas on the TED stage. Who are we? That is the big question. And essentially, we are just an upright, walking, big brain, super intelligent ape. We belong to the family called the hominidae. We are the species called Homo sapiens sapiens. We are one species of about five and a half thousand mammalian species that exist on planet Earth today. And that's just a tiny fraction of all species that have ever lived on the planet in past times. We're one species out of approximately, well, let's say at least 16 upright walking apes that have existed over the past six to eight million years. But as far as we know, we're the only upright walking ape that exists on planet Earth today. And it's important to remember that and in terms of our place in the world today and our future on planet Earth. In fact, if you go back in time, it is the norm that there are multiple species of hominids or of, of human ancestors that coexist at any one time. We've only been around for the past 200,000 years as a species, yet we've reached a population of more than six and a half billion people. But what's happened is our technology has removed the checks and balances on our population growth. My father so appropriately put it, that we are certainly the only animal that makes conscious choices that are bad for our survival as a species. Can we hold it together? It's important to remember that we all evolved in Africa. We all have an African origin. We have a common past and we share a common future. Evolutionary speaking, we're just a blip. We're sitting on the edge of a precipice. We have the tools and the technology at our hands to communicate what needs to be done to hold it together today. 
will we do that? Or will we just let nature take its course? In a sense, what you do by looking into the past is almost like a window into into the future. Well, that that's absolutely right. I think when you work on fossils and you realize that a species is there um, and it's abundant for quite a long period of time and then at some point it's no longer there. And so when you look at that bigger picture, yes, you realize that that either you, you change um, and then adapt or as a, as a species you go extinct. I mean, you think about Neanderthals um, who, who lasted for half a, a million years, right? And, and we've been around for 200,000. Um, I mean, let's just talk about 5,000 years from now. I mean, do you think it's likely that we will be here in 5,000 years? I've, I couldn't answer that question. I really, I stop and think about it quite often. I, I, as a species, yes, we probably could be here, but in what numbers? And possibly far fewer if, if we're really going to sustain ourselves on the planet. But every species becomes extinct. At some point, we will go extinct. The question is, as Homo sapiens, are we going to be able to adapt to the change that we're actually part of? We're, we're causing such dramatic changes to the planet. So, yes, you, you do stop and think, I wonder where we're headed. Louise Leakey is a third-generation paleontologist from the legendary Leakey family. You can check out her full talk at ted.npr.org. Our show today, How It All Began, Ideas About Our Collective Past. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to E-Trade. Investing your money shouldn't require moving mountains, no matter how much or how little experience you have. E-Trade makes investing simpler. And for a limited time, get $100 when you open a new account with just $5,000. It's all about helping your money work hard for you. For more information, visit etrade.com slash learn more. E-Trade Securities, LLC, member SIPC. Thanks also to Personal Capital, offering online financial tools to give you a 360-degree view of all your accounts in one place. Want to talk? Personal Capital has registered advisors who can help you invest smarter and plan for retirement. Download the Personal Capital app or start investing today at personalcapital.com. Personal Capital, invest with logic, plan with heart. This week on Ask Me Another, singer Paula Cole surprises us with one of her lesser-known talents. Do you do any bird calls? Well... (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) What is going on? This and more on NPR's Ask Me Another. Listen now. Hey, really quick before we get back to the show, if you know of a kid between the ages of, say, 4 and 12 who is curious about the world and the world of science, you have to check out my kids' podcast, Wow in the World. Me and my co-host, Mindy Thomas, travel around the world, backwards and forwards in time, inside the human body, and deep into interstellar space for a show that will take you and the kids you know 
on an incredible journey. All new episodes begin December 2nd, so check out Wow in the World wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And our show today, how it all began. Ideas about our origins. So if you'd been hanging out in, say, the town of Whitehorse, which is in Canada's Yukon Territory this past week, this is what you'd have heard on the radio. On 96.1 The Rush. Hi, I'm Marge, and this is Marge's Market. Tired of paying rent? There are alternatives. And around the same time, around 6,000 miles to the southeast, you would have heard this in Peru. About 8,000 miles northeast. This was on the air in St. Petersburg, Russia. And more than 3,000 miles south, this in Kenya. So earlier in the show, David Christian explained that it was language that gave us an edge as a species. More than 6,000 languages are spoken around the world. So how did that happen? How did we come to look and sound so different? Well, that's what Spencer Wells has been trying to figure out. I mean, I spend my life traveling, visiting places like Chad and Tajikistan and Papua New Guinea and Palau. Spencer Wells, you might remember, is the geneticist who analyzed my DNA earlier in the show. He's also an explorer for National Geographic. And he told us that one of the things he really likes to do when he travels is to look at faces. You know, you see people who seem to be so different from each other. And kind of the underlying theme of our work is, well, how different are they really? It turns out not much. And while Louise Leakey and her family proved that through prehistoric bones and fossils... Spencer Wells looks for the evidence of our common origins in living, breathing human beings. He's using the tools of molecular genetics to figure out when human populations began to migrate from Africa and spread out across the globe. More on that in a minute. But first, let's go back to the beginning. So we are about 200,000 years old, right? Approximately. Like the way way humans are. Things that we would recognize as being like us if they were sitting here in the studio. 200,000 years ago. Where are we living and and what do we sort of look like? We're living as a very small group of hunter-gatherers out in the savannas of likely eastern Africa, so present-day Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania. And it was in that kind of crucible of East African hunter-gatherer society that all of the modern human characteristics arose. So 200,000 years ago, we're all dark. Our skin is darker. Yeah, we're we're a species of hairless primate, and we evolved in the the tropics. And there was no SPF 50 200,000 years ago, so we had to have some sort of natural sunscreen, and that was melanin. It's amazing to think about the age of our universe. 200,000 years is nothing. It's like a blip in time. It's like it's not even a second on the 24-hour clock. Exactly. And yet we It's a few thousand human generations. Yeah. So we're talking about a huge change in the way we, we look. In such a short period of time. Absolutely. So why? Yeah, why? That's one of the big unsolved mysteries. We know that there's been adaptation. So we started off dark, living in the tropics in Africa. And my ancestors, for instance, who came from northern Europe. You're, very, you're a very white guy. You know? <laughs> my buddy Skip Gates, yeah. who does all of the uh, PBS shows and yeah. African-American lives and so on, is filming with me once. And he says, Spencer, you know, it takes the whitest man in the world to tell us we all came from black Africans. <laughs> 
Spencer Wells picks up the story from the TED stage. Now, how recently do we share this ancestry? Was it millions of years ago? Which we might suspect by looking at all this incredible variation around the world. No, the DNA tells a story that's very clear. Within the last 200,000 years, we all share an ancestor, a single person, mitochondrial Eve, you might have heard about her, in Africa, an African woman who gave rise to all the mitochondrial diversity in the world today. But what's even more amazing is that if you look at the Y chromosome side, the male side of the story, the Y chromosome Adam only lived around 60,000 years ago. That's only about 2,000 human generations, the blink of an eye in an evolutionary sense. That tells us we were all still living in Africa at that time. This was an African man who gave rise to all the Y chromosome diversity around the world. It's only within the last 60,000 years that we have started to generate this incredible diversity we see around the world. Such an amazing story. We're all effectively part of an extended African family. And what happens? When do they, how do they, how do they start to move out and, and where do they go? Well, so the evidence is that there might have been a little brief foray into the Middle East and the Arabian Peninsula as early as 120,000 years ago, but they didn't go very far beyond that. But the big blast came out around 60,000 years ago. So that's 2,000 human generations. So the question, of course, is what happened? Why didn't humans start to leave Africa earlier than that? Well, that's a big question. These why questions, particularly in genetics and the study of history, when all else fails... Talk about the weather. What was going on to the world's weather around 60,000 years ago? Well, we were going into the worst part of the last ice age. The northern hemisphere had massive growing ice sheets. New York City, Chicago, Seattle, all under a sheet of ice. Most of Britain, all of Scandinavia, covered by ice several kilometers thick. Now, Africa is the most tropical continent. We weren't covered in ice in Africa. Rather, Africa was drying out at that time. The reason for that is that ice actually sucks moisture out of the atmosphere. If you think about Antarctica, it's technically a desert. And Africa was turning to desert. The Sahara was much bigger then than it is now. And the human habitat was reduced to just a few small pockets compared to what we have today. The evidence from genetic data is that the human population around this time, roughly 70,000 years ago, crashed to fewer than 2,000 individuals. We nearly went extinct. We were hanging on by our fingernails. We were almost completely wiped out as a species. And if that wasn't bad enough? We had the eruption of a megavolcano, the largest volcanic eruption in the last 20 to 30 million years, Mount <laughs> Toba in Sumatra, which today is Lake Toba. And it blew its top and it spewed all of this ash into the atmosphere and sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. And this had the effect of, of creating a global nuclear winter, in effect. Wow. And temperatures dropped by 15 or 20 degrees Celsius wow, on it average. Just blocked the sun. Yeah, it blocked out the sun, basically. And so the animals and the plants become sparser. And so the human population becomes sparser. We can also look at the genetic variation that we see today. And humans have remarkably little genetic variation for a species of large ape. We're highly inbred. And it's because the population size around the time of that volcanic eruption dropped down to maybe as few as 2,000. Wow. But then 50, 60, 70,000 years ago, somewhere in that region, all hell breaks loose. Art makes its appearance. The stone tools become much more finely crafted. The evidence is that humans begin to specialize in particular prey species at particular times of the year. The population size started to expand. 
probably, according to what many linguists believe, fully modern language, syntactic language, subject, verb, object that we use to convey complex ideas, like I'm doing now, appeared around that time. We became much more social. The social networks expanded. This change in behavior allowed us to survive these worsening conditions in Africa, and they allowed us to start to expand around the world. What do we imagine that, that migration was like? Well, I think it was really just a question of people moving a little bit further in search of better food supplies or water supplies. Uh, there might have been some wanderlust. So it wasn't, it. it wasn't like, hey, let's go, you know, 10,000 miles. It was, it was a very slow migration over thousands well, of Well, every long journey starts with a step. And in this case, people had no idea what was out there. I mean, there was nobody tweeting from Siberia saying, hey, guys, come on up here. There's lots of, you know, reindeer up here on the tundra. Um, they didn't know what they were going to encounter. I mean, it's really amazing if you think about it. You're setting off on the biggest journey in the history of your species. You have no idea where you're going, but you are smart enough to be able to figure out solutions to all the problems that are going to be thrown in your way. The reason you're alive today is because of those changes in our brains that took place in Africa around 60, 70,000 years ago, allowing us not only to survive in Africa, but to expand out of Africa. An early coastal migration along the south coast of Asia, leaving Africa around 60,000 years ago, reaching Australia very rapidly by 50,000 years ago. Slightly later migration up into the Middle East. These would have been savanna hunters entering Europe around 35,000 years ago. And finally, a small group migrating up through the worst weather imaginable. Siberia, inside the Arctic Circle, during the last ice age, temperatures of minus 70, minus 80, even minus 100, perhaps, migrating into the Americas, ultimately reaching that final frontier. An amazing story, and it happened first in Africa, the changes that allowed us to do that, the evolution of this highly adaptable brain that we all carry around with us, allowing us to create novel cultures, allowing us to develop the diversity that we see on a whirlwind trip like the one I've just been on. Thank you very much. Spencer Wells is a geneticist and the director of the Genographic Project at National Geographic. You can check out his entire TED Talk at ted.npr.org. Okay, so up until this point, we've been talking about where we've come from, but what about where we're going and what we're evolving into? So Juan, um, the last time we spoke, you said uh, you said that we are going to become yet another hominid or set of hominids. We're going to evolve into something different. Um, do you still think that? Is that still your view? I think it's becoming increasingly likely that we'll become various species. This is futurist Juan Enriquez. And what is making it increasingly likely these days is two things. One is new genetic technologies that allow you to alter gene code in a basic way. And the second is space travel, which will create a need for various kinds of bodies that haven't evolved to survive radiation or different gravity or different structures. Juan was on the show back in 2014, and since then, a lot has changed with gene editing technology and what Juan calls the life code revolution. It's moving so quickly. So within the last 60 days, one of the things that we've seen is new research coming out that allows you to change not just blocks of genes, but individual letters in the gene code. And so the pinpoint accuracy of being able to do that means that the likelihood of side effects are much lower 
and the effectiveness is much higher. Now, why would you want to do this? Well, one of the things about traveling in space is because you don't have the atmosphere, you're far more exposed to radiation. Right. And we know there are some bugs, some plants, some animals that are far more sensitive to radiation than others are. And in the measure that you understand why some creatures are more or less vulnerable to radiation, it may be possible to engineer a human genome almost like you do with a vaccine hmm. in such a way that we become far more radiation resistant. Which would allow us to live on Mars. Which would allow us to live in a very different atmosphere, which would allow us to travel much longer distances across space without coming down with terrible cancers, which may make it possible even to get to another solar system. I mean, when that happens, right, what, what would we even look like? Like, if, if we go back 300,000 years, right, humans looked more or less the same, right? Like, we would recognize them today. Um, but in this future that you're describing, if, if we're still around, what would we look like? Like, what parts of us would we potentially not need? So, if you lose an arm or if you lose a leg, you're still you. If you have a kidney transplant, you're still you. Mm. If you lose your brain, then you're not you then, you know, your, your fundamental humanity has left. Right. And so I think people tend to focus a lot on what the body would look like. And that's an interesting question, but that's not the core question. The core mm -hmm. question is, how are our brains going to evolve? Our brains are 2% of our body weight and about 20% of our energy consumption. And I suspect what's going to happen is, as we're faced with more and more challenges and questions, one, our brains are likely to get larger. They will consume more energy, which will probably start melding, communicating, co-processing with other brains, and probably creating a symbiotic relationship with machines. Wow. But what about like the rest of us? Like what about the rest of, of our bodies? What's probably gonna happen is we're gonna start remaking each of our body parts as they wear out. And the limiting factor then to how long people live is not going to be your body parts because it's going to be like your old house that, you know, you redo the kitchen, you redo the bathroom, you swap out the oven, you mm. put in a new fridge. Well, that's what's going to happen to our bodies with, with our body parts. And, and then the limiting factor is the brain because we're a long way from understanding the brain. We're a long way from being able to map the brain. We're a long way from being able to reproduce the brain, and we're a long way from being able to download memories from one brain to another. Hmm. But if you do that, then all bets are off as to how long a human being can live. Wow. You know, um, one of the questions that I've, I've asked futurists a lot um, over the years, and something that um, I think about in, in this episode is whether we will be around in a thousand years or even 500 years. And, and if you want to know my answer, I think, I think there will be humans on the planet in 500 years, but far fewer. And I, I think it, it sounds dark and, and pessimistic, but I, I can't imagine a world in 500 years where humans are thriving and growing. Uh, what, do you, what do you think? I mean, do you, do you think that we will be thriving in 500 years on planet Earth? You know, I tend to agree with you on most things. This one I don't agree with you on. I oh, great. That's good. It. I don't want you to because I don't <laughs> want that future. 
<laughs> no, I mean, look, one of the things I love to ask audiences is if, you know, we had a way of safely putting you into a deep sleep for 300 years <laughs> and you got a chance to wake up and see what's happened in 300 years, would you do it? <laughs> and I would love to see what's here in 300 years. I think there's never been a better time to be alive than today. There's a whole lot of problems in the world today, and we have to recognize those. But, boy, compared to 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 yeah. years ago, things have gotten mostly better in most places. And 300 years from now, I think our great-great-grandkids are going to be doing stuff that's unimaginable in terms of how they've dealt with violence, how they have created a more peaceful, prosperous world in terms of how they've gotten out into space. I would love to see what happens in 300 years. That's Juan Enriquez. He's a futurist and co-author of the book, Evolving Ourselves, how unnatural selection and non-random mutation are changing life on Earth. You can see all of his talks at TED.com. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team in. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week, How It All Began. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Bridget McCarthy, with help from Daniel Shukin, Eric Newsom, and Portia Robertson-Migas. Our intern is Amanda Hunnigfort. Our partners at TED include Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team.